You are listening to the Rooted Ministry Podcast, a conversation advancing gospel-centered ministry to youth. This episode is audio from a plenary session at our 2018 conference in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about Rooted, visit our website at www.rootedministry.com. Good evening. So grateful to get to be with you. I'm wondering, where's the guy or, or woman from the Yukon Territory? Are you in here? No? Okay, because I wanted to personally apologize uh, because it took me all of five minutes to get here. So I I feel a little bit badly that uh, this person traveled that far because you could almost throw a rock and hit my house from here. And so um, it's rare that I get to speak at a conference that is so close to my house, but I am so grateful. I imagine that a lot of you flew to get here. Raise your hand if you flew to get here, all right? All right, put them down. Raise your hand if you took more than one flight to get here, right? All right, awesome. All right, so those of you who took a couple of flights to get here, if you checked bags, you're far too cool to check bags, I know that. But if you had checked bags, uh, you know the drill of what would have happened. You would have gone up to the counter, and you would have told them that you are going to Nashville, Um, And that would have been your answer to this key question they would have asked you. They would have asked you the question, what is your, do you know the answer? Final destination. Because maybe you were boarding a plane that was going to go through Dallas or to Atlanta or to Cincinnati or to Chicago. But their question is, what is your final destination? destination, because that's where you want your bags to go. And the truth is, uh, as you prepared for this trip, perhaps you told some people that you were coming uh, to Nashville for this conference. And of course, Nashville is the coolest place ever, isn't it? Right? So everybody thinks that's really cool. You're going to Nashville. And I doubt that those of you who were traveling here, but stopping in the Atlanta airport, I doubt you spent a lot of time telling them excitedly about all the things you were anticipating at the Atlanta airport or all the things you were hoping to do there, to to see there, to experience there, Um, because that was not your final destination. That was an intermediate stop on the way to your final destination, which is Nashville. Well... The truth is, um, we, you, you didn't invest a lot of time in thinking about that place because it wasn't your final destination. Now, the Bible presents to us a beautiful picture of our final destination. In fact, we could say that the Bible is the story of what God has done, what he is doing so that you and I can enjoy the final destination that God has prepared for us. But I think something very strange has happened in our modern Christian culture. And that is that somewhere along the way, many of us, in fact, most of modern Western Christianity, somewhere along the way, we became fixated on the intermediate stop along the way to our final destination. In fact, we talk about this intermediate stop 
along the way that he's prepared for us, we, we talk about it like it is everything that God has prepared for us. In fact, people who claim to have been there come back from there and they write books that millions of people buy and consume that many of these people actually put more stock in than what the Bible says. So somehow we've come to think about, to talk about, in fact, to settle for this intermediate stop along the way instead of talking about, thinking about, uh, increasing our longing for the place that God intends for us to live forever with him our final destination. And I would have to say, to be honest with you, even though I've been a Christian and studying the Bible uh, since I was a child, in fact, for most of my life, I'm not sure that I had ever heard anything other than a focus on uh, this going to heaven when we die. For most of my life, my understanding of the trajectory of the future was that those who embrace Christ by faith have entered into everlasting life so that when death comes, they go to be with God somewhere other than this dimension. And I wonder how many of you, in terms of the students you minister to, would that be the way that they would describe what the trajectory, what, what they're being presented as the trajectory of the Christian life? Now, the thing is that there is nothing that's necessarily wrong about that idea. It's just that it's not the full picture. That it, in fact, diminishes what the Bible sets before us as God's intentions about our final destination. So let's begin by looking at what the Bible does tell us about this intermediate stop, this intermediate stop that in most common nomenclature we describe as heaven. So we'll look at that intermediate stop. And then secondly, we're going to look more closely at the day the Bible does set before us to set our hopes on. And then finally, we're going to consider what difference it makes. Um, when we embrace and when we encourage those we are ministering to, those especially the students we are ministering to, to embrace a fuller picture of what God is preparing for us. So first, let's think about together this intermediate stop that we call heaven. Now, but you know what? Maybe this should be a really short part because the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about this intermediate stop, about what um, awaits the believer immediately following death. In fact, though most of us would say that we believe that we will go to heaven when we die, there simply is no scripture that states it exactly in that way. And so perhaps that should give us pause. If that is actually our go-to script for calling people to Christ, if it's centered on that statement. Now, but the Bible does, however, tell us some very important things about what the person who has become united to Christ can anticipate immediately upon death. And I think it tells us four central things that I want to walk through quickly. Um, let's look first. I hope you have your Bibles. Open them with me if you do to Philippians chapter 1. 
Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 and 23, because we find two of these important four things here in Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 and 23. And the first thing that we find in this passage is this reality, that after death, when we enter into the presence, we will be with Christ. All right, look with me in verse, beginning of verse 21. For to me, Paul writes, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. His desire is to die, that when he dies, knowing that when he dies, he will be with Christ. This is the essence of it. And in fact, this is the essence of what Jesus says about it. When he is on the cross, you remember the scene where he's on the cross and the thief beside him has expressed faith in him. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be, you know the words, right? What? With me with me in paradise. So those who are united to Christ by faith uh, will be with Christ where he is at the right hand of God in heaven. Immediately upon death, we will experience a closeness and a communion with Christ that's going to be richer than anything we have ever experienced on this earth. So if we want a definition of heaven, I think it could be this, that heaven is where God dwells. What is heaven? Heaven is where God dwells. And the scriptures emphasize this about heaven, that heaven is being with Christ. But I would have to say that our culture, including our Christian culture, what it tends to emphasize about heaven is not so much being with Christ, but instead being with people we love who have died, don't you think? Uh, a number of years ago, you know, you live here in Nashville and you know people in the music industry, and a number of years ago, a music industry friend of ours uh, called us up and he asked us if we would meet down at this house down in Franklin to be in a music video that he was creating. And every person who was going to be in this music video was asked to bring a picture of someone they loved uh, who had died. And so my husband David and my son Matt, uh, we took our big old portraits of uh, my daughter Hope and our son Gabriel, and we took those down to that house where they were shooting this music video. And at this point, this song had just come out. You all know the song now. It was just beginning to become a huge hit, which is I Can Only Imagine. All right? So if you want to pull up on YouTube and watch the official music video for I Can Only Imagine. All right. Listen to me. All right. We're there. All right, but I think this music video represents exactly what we're talking about in terms of our Christian culture emphasis on the joys of heaven. Because here's this, here's this music video, and you know, you remember the words of that song. You know, it's like, uh, when I enter into his presence, uh, what is it? You know, what will, my, what will I say? What will I do? I'm going to 
fall before him and bow before his feet. I can only imagine what it's going to be like. So all of the words are talking about how great it's going to be in heaven in the presence of Christ. And what do you see in the video? All of us, with our pictures of people we love who have died. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think it just really represents kind of our, our um, the way we think about this, and in some ways, some of our confusion or the way we, what we tend to emphasize about heaven. Now, let me tell you, uh, while people we love are precious to us and our reunions with them in heaven will be grand, and I got to tell you, when I say that, sometimes I kind of take it for granted, and sometimes I actually feel a sense of the reality that that's really true. The, the most recently when I felt that, I was, anybody happened to see that thing on the news recently about these brief reunions between people in North Korea and South Korea who uh, were families? And it showed they got like 12 hours with each other. And it showed pictures of like a 90-year-old mother and she's seeing her, you know, 70-year-old son and she hasn't seen him for, you know, 50 or 60 years. And just watching that reunion, it took my breath away. And I thought to myself, that day is coming for me. When I'm going to see these children that I have been separated with for so long in my life. So understand, I, I value this. But let me tell you what, the joy of heaven and what will make heaven heaven is that together with those we love, we will be with Christ. That is going to be the joy of heaven. So that's number one thing we know about this intermediate stop. It is to be with Christ. Secondly... We know from these verses, look back there in verse 23, the very last thing Paul says, he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And we have to understand that when we read Paul saying this, he's a reliable source. Because he's been there. Remember this from 2 Corinthians chapter 12? He says, you know, I knew a man 14 years ago, I don't know if he's in the body or out of the body, uh, but entered into paradise. So this, you know what, you know, this is why we like, uh, like Travelocity. No, no, what, what is it? No, TripAdvisor. Because it's people who've been there and they tell us how the hotel was or, or how the city was or how the restaurant was, right? So Paul, when he says it is better by far, it is far better we can take his word for that because he has been there. Being in the presence of Christ is not going to be merely a minor improvement on this life. It's not going to be boring. It's going to be thrilling and fulfilling beyond our capacity to even uh, imagine or anticipate now. So number two, being with Christ will be far better. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look with me at verses 6 through 8. Here's the third, thir the third thing we learn about this intermediate stop on our way to our final destination. Beginning verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be, now he's going to present the alternates, away from the body, and at home for the Lord. So the other thing we know about this intermediate stop is that we are away 
from the body. Now, when we think about our loved ones in heaven or just try to imagine anything about heaven, I think we have a really hard time imagining those we love or even our own future existence thinking of in terms of being without bodies. That's the only way we know how to picture people we love and, and even ourselves in this setting. But that's not the realities uh, of this intermediate stop. Our spirits, our souls are going to go to be with Christ, but we will be absent from the body. Uh, during our son Gabriel's life, uh, we had a reporter from the local uh, newspaper, the Tennessean, who called us the day he was born and asked us if she could follow us all through Gabriel's life, if she and a photographer could do that, and so that she could, I mean, basically write a story after he died. And we were a little uncertain about that. It was like we didn't want his brief life to be just for the story or for the cameras. But um, we took her to her first hospital visit with us, and and I remember asked, she, we, we sat at a restaurant afterwards and just talked to her for a while, and at one point she looked at us and she said, I don't understand this piece you have, but I want it. And I was like, okay, I think it's going to be a yes. All right, so her name was... Her name was Sylvia Slaughter, and she's just like your picture of an old, grizzled newspaper woman, you know, like with, you know, her uncolored gray hair and the cigarette kind of out of her mouth, like on a manual typewriter. I mean, that was Sylvia, all right? And so, and she spent all this time with us for, for six months. She was in and out of our house and events and... She, now, I should have noticed during those six months with Sylvia that she was never taking very many notes. And and I learned after Gabriel died and she wrote a draft of the story that she was kind enough, this never happens, but she was kind enough to show us a draft of the story before it ran. And then I figured out why she was never taking any notes because she was content to make up things for us that put them in our mouth that we said that we didn't say, okay? And um, so there were a lot of things she put in the article quoting me and David that we kind of let go. But there was one thing that she had me saying that I simply could not abide with and just told her she had to change. What she had, she had, uh, as we were leaving, actually she and the photographer were there at Vanderbilt Medical School, at Vanderbilt uh, Hospital, the night that Gabriel died. It seems, might seem weird that we invited them, but they'd been with us for everything for six months and they loved him. And so they were there. But she had me saying, as we left the hospital, she had me saying, well, at least now his little feet are straight. You see, Hope and Gabe were both born with club feet. They were very twisted. And so she had me saying, well, at least now his little feet are straight. And I just said to Sylvia, I know I didn't say that, Because I know it isn't true. His feet are not straight. His body, he is absent from the body. See, we we put a body in the ground or in a, it's ashes in a container. We are absent from the body, but then our souls, our spirits are at home with the Lord. So what does this mean? This means we don't talk about people who have died talking about how they're playing golf in heaven or for kids riding their skateboards in heaven. 
I mean, the Bible does not see fit to reveal a great deal to us about this spirit with no body time of the intermediate state. And so we probably want to avoid speculation. And not only that, I would say we want to avoid sentimentalism that leads to confusion about this. So that was number three. We're away from the body. Finally, number four, and I find this in Hebrews chapter 12. You don't have to turn there. The writer of Hebrews uh, speaks to believers who, and he describes coming believers who have come to Christ, and he says they've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is in Hebrews 12, 22. And then he says that gathered there are the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And then here's the key thing, I think, in verse 23. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. So the fourth thing we know about this intermediate stop is our spirits there will be made perfectly holy. Our holy God. Sin cannot enter into the presence of our holy God. And when we enter into the presence of God, all of our sin will not only be forgiven, it will be gone for good. And there in his presence, we will never sin again. And those we love who have gone into the presence of God before us, they're no longer plagued with selfishness or with lust or with pride. They're no longer too busy to hear God speak, no longer resistant to his will, no longer reluctant to give themselves wholly to worshiping God. They have been purified, they have been perfected, they are holy and happy. So we might wish that the Bible told us more about this intermediate state. I think these are the four things that are clear that we know for sure about this, about the realities of heaven for those, those who would be died. We might wish the Bible would tell us more and we can let that frustrate us. We can let that disappoint us. We can try to fill in what it doesn't tell us with a lot of our own ideas. Or we can do this. And you might guess this is what I propose that we do, which would be that instead we would take hold of what the Bible does present to us and then live and die like we really do believe it's true. That we might live and grieve as the Bible says we could do, to grieve as those who have hope. You see, the Bible does hold out hope, a hope to set our hearts on, to set our minds on. It's a reality that we're meant to remind each other of in order to comfort each other. And that is the reality of resurrection. 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 That is the drumbeat of the scriptures in regard to what it tells us about the future. Paul writes in Philippians, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion when? At the day of Christ Jesus. You see, this work that God began in you when he saved you, when is it going to be complete? And therefore, the day we want to set our hopes on It's at the day of Christ Jesus. It's the day he returns 
and makes those who are joined to him by faith, faith fully glorious in body and soul. Paul beats this drum over and over again. This is how Paul expresses his greatest desire. He says in Philippians chapter 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. It's almost like you can see Paul's trajectory of the future that he's putting all of his hopes in, and it is pointed toward resurrection day. Notice that all of his hopes, he doesn't express them as being wrapped up in going to heaven when he dies. He expresses them in terms of resurrection. All right, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In 1 Thessalonians 4, here's what Paul writes, beginning in verse 13. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, in other words, those who have died before us, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. So this passage is drawing a distinction between those who grieve with hope and those who grieve with no hope. And so we want to ask this passage, what is the substance of this hope that's being held out to us? What is the substance that we can set our hopes on that's going to actually bring us the comfort and the encouragement that we, that we long for? Well, look at verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. This is Resurrection Day. Skip to verse 18. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord and therefore encourage one another with these words. Now notice that Paul doesn't tell us to comfort each other with the truth that Christians who have died are in heaven. And once again, it's, it's not that it's not true. It's true. It is pressure, precious. But notice rather he commands us to comfort one another with the promise of resurrection day. The substance of our hope is not merely a spirit with no body existence in the presence of God. The substance of our hope is our spirits being reunited with resurrected bodies that are fit for eternal enjoyment. And you see, I think this is where things have gotten fuzzy for me for most of my life. For most of my life, I don't think I ever really thought this through because I... I, I would have run into a wall, I think, if, I, if I'd ever really given a lot of thought to what, my, how my eternal post-resurrection, because you read about the resurrection plenty in the Bible, and especially at funerals, you read these resurrection passages, but I don't think I ever thought through, how is my existence post that resurrection day going to be different from my existence in the presence with, of Christ before Christ 
returns. So I think I didn't think that through. Likewise, I don't think I ever thought through, where am I going to live then? With this resurrected body. And here's where we get to our final destination. The destination we're meant to put all our hopes in. The destination that's going to help us to not grieve without hope, but instead grieve with hope. In fact, the, the Thessalonians passage we just read, it speaks of Christ returning and, that the, and the dead in Christ rising and meeting him in the air. And then the big question becomes, where do we go from there? Does the fact that we meet him in the air mean that then we go somewhere away from this earth with him? Back to heaven perhaps? Only now with spirits rejoined to bodies? Well, the, the Greek term that's used here, and probably most of you know a whole lot more Greek than I do because this is like it, okay? The Greek term used here for to meet, it, it, it was often used to describe what happens when an important dignitary came to an ancient city and all of the inhabitants of the city went out of the city to greet him and then accompany him back into the city. And you see, while this verse is often used by teachers with a particular end times view to support a scenario in which Christ comes and takes his people away from this earth in what's called the rapture, that can't really be supported from this passage at least. It's far more likely that this is a picture of Christ returning to this earth as king. He is a king coming to his realm and he's calling his own to resurrection life. And those who have been resurrected from the dead go out to meet the returning king who is coming to earth. And do you remember what I gave you as the definition of where heaven is? What was it? Heaven is the place where God dwells, right? So he's returning to earth. He is bringing heaven to earth because he is coming to the earth. So what this means is that when the king of heaven comes again to this earth, this earth will become heaven because heaven is where God dwells. And here's what I totally missed. Most of my life, it's not just our dead bodies that are going to be transformed and renewed when Christ returns. The whole earth, the entire cosmos is going to be remade, renewed, cleansed, recreated. Heaven is going to come to earth. And in reality, earth is going to become heaven. Now see, I always thought that the earth was going to be destroyed by fire. Anybody else? Is that what you were always taught? Yes? And this is based on what we read in 2 Peter 3, 7. It says this, The heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But you have to think with me about what fire does. Fire can destroy or fire can cleanse. 
I loved it. I was talking about this topic a while ago in, at a church in Colorado Springs. And this church was the perfect place to make this point because you remember a number of years ago, maybe like five years ago, there were all those huge wildfires all around Colorado Springs. And actually, the fires came up almost like right to the door of the church. And so all of the hills behind the fire, uh, uh, all of the hills behind the church had at one point been burned. But it had been several years since then. And so now what was happening in those fields? Green. Green was beginning to grow again because fire destroys, but fire also purifies. Fire also purifies so that new life can blossom. And so what Peter is telling us is not that this earth is going to be destroyed by fire, but that it's going to be purified by fire. This, the New Testament tells us that, in fact, the whole creation is groaning in longing, in anticipation for this day. This is what Paul writes in Romans 8. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. What's that? The revealing of the sons of God. That's resurrection day. Resurrection day. The revealing of the sons of God. All creation is longing for that day. Why is creation longing for that day? Well, Paul continues there in Romans 8. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Subjected in hope. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. They're going to share in this same resurrection newness that begins in the bodies of those who are joined to Christ. So what the Bible holds out there for us to wait eagerly for, it's it's the word it used, is not going to heaven when we die. The purpose of our salvation is not simply that we go to heaven when we die. And, And the purpose of your ministry as you call kids to, to be joined to Christ. And oh, how I hope you are calling kids to take hold of Christ. That that is at the heart, that's the passion of your ministry. But it's not simply so that they will go to heaven when they're dying. In fact, we are being swept up into a much bigger salvation story. A much bigger redemption and renewal story than just our individual lives. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and he fashioned Adam from the dust of the ground and Eve from Adam and he put them in this garden paradise where they enjoyed perfect relationship with him with each other and their lives were filled with purpose in fulfilling this mandate uh, to fill the earth and subdue it but what happened they rebelled against God they didn't trust his word they didn't trust in his goodness and they chose to decide for themselves what was going to make them happy. And when they sinned, sin brought upon this entire creation a curse. And so now their work that was meant to be fulfilling, now it's going to be frustrating. And now this one flesh relationship they enjoyed, now it's going to be filled with friction. And now this childbearing that was supposed to bring Eve so much joy, now it's going to bring pain. And the perfection of the creation gave way to natural disasters and deadly viruses and defective genes and dead-end jobs and divorce and depression and deformity and death. 
We can lay the blame for fatal accidents and birth defects and pediatric cancer on the curse of sin. And yet right there in the garden, God also made a promise. The first gospel promise that a descendant of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent and put an end to the evil that brought so much misery into the world. And in fact, right there in the garden, God began working out his plan to remake and renew what had become ruined by sin. He called a people to himself, and he brought them into a land from which he's going to launch his salvation, redemptive purposes in this world. That's what the promised land was. And that's who Israel's king was. He was a living preview of God's people living in God's place under God's authority like they once had in Eden. And then finally the day came when that descendant of the woman, that offspring of the woman was born, Christ himself. And what did he do? He took the curse of sin upon himself. Is that not pictured by the crown of thorns? Thorns that became a reality in the curse in Genesis 3. And a a, a crown of thorns is not just placed on, but pressed into his head, demonstrating for us that he has become a curse for us so that the death grip of sin that it has on all creation might be broken. And when he cried out from the cross, it is finished, that work was done. Now we might think that at that moment everything would be made right, all that was wrong would be set right, made well, everything dead would come back to life. But as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, that when Christ died and rose from the dead, he was called, and this is an important word for us to understand, he was called the first fruits. The first fruits of all who will rise from their graves. And so while everything has been accomplished to bring about this great renewal, it's not going to become a reality until that we're going to live in forever until Christ returns. Right now we're living in this in-between time. I liked what our previous speakers called it, this now and not yet. We're, we're getting to experience some of the benefits of Christ's resurrection life. That's what happens. This is what Paul's saying when he says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that all those who are in Christ... The NIV says the new creation has come. It's like the new creation of the future is reaching into the presence. And it's making us, beginning to make us new. On, on, on the inside, he's transforming us to be holy like he is. But we're still waiting for the resurrection of the dead and the eradication of all the effects of curse upon all creation. God's plan, according to Ephesians 1.10, is this, that in the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on the earth. Let's see, it's October, it's early October, before we know it, we're going to begin singing Christmas carols, and we're going to sing a carol that's interesting, I think because I didn't understand this for most of my life, about the new heavens and the new earth and this larger story that the Bible is telling that makes sense of my story. Because I didn't understand that. I never understood something about joy to the world, even though I really liked the song. 
And that is that joy to the world, even though we sing it at Christmas, we're not really singing about the first advent. Have you noticed? All right. Uh, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Did earth receive her king the first time he came? No. Um, but then we get to this part. He comes to make his blessings flow. Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. It didn't happen the first time. He accomplished everything necessary for it. But that that we're going to sing about, that I hope you will sing about with your youth and that you will make clear to them so they understand what they're singing about when they sing Joy to the World, is we're, we're longing for the second advent, for him to come again, for Resurrection Day, because it's then that his blessing will flow as far as the curse is found. The person who spoke at my daughter Hope's memorial service, which, by the way, took place in this room. The person who spoke at her service, she used Revelation 21's description of the new heaven and the new earth and used it to describe the place that Hope entered into after her death. You remember Revelation 21 where we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. You remember that whole passage. But you see, Revelation 21 is not a picture of this intermediate stop. Revelation 21 is a picture of our final destination. It's a picture of what's going to happen when Christ returns to raise not only our bodies, but in fact all of creation to resurrection newness. Clearly, what the New Testament writers hold out to us to look forward to, to long for, to plant and dig our roots deep in, in terms of our hopes in, it's the day that Christ returns. And the bodies of believers are resurrected and the whole creation is recreated. Yet I cannot remember being taught about the new heavens and the new earth until maybe 12 years ago, and I think I was sitting in that third, fourth pew right there. I'd never, what? New heavens? New earth? I, I just never thought it through, even though it's spoken of in both the Old and throughout the, the New Testaments. And I'm relieved, however, to find out that I am not alone Maybe some of you could let me know right now that I'm not alone. But I was fascinated a number of years ago. Have any of you ever seen this? You can find it on YouTube. Uh, John Piper sat down with Rick Warren, and they kind of interviewed each other. Have any of you ever seen that? It's fascinating. Did that because Rick Warren had to cancel speaking at John Piper's conference, and so they sat down, they talked to each other. Let me just read you a little bit of their conversation, which I found fascinating. John Piper says to Rick Warren, How do you conceive of eternity? Heaven is usually used as a word for where we're going, where we will be. What is your understanding of the new heavens, new earth? Where will we wind up after the resurrection? Good question. Uh, uh, Rick Warren says, that's a good question. We agree. Okay. Um, he says, I do know I'm going to heaven. I've read the passages that define paradise. To me, what matters is that I'm going to be with Jesus. We like that. Yeah. Uh, in his presence. Every knee will bow. Heaven is a real place, not a state of being, where we will do these things. Reuniting, rewards, reassignment. 
Piper then says to him, so are you saying you leave open whether we wind up on a new earth? And here's Rick Warren's response, I do. Honest, I honestly haven't studied it as deeply as I should. And I'm not saying that to make fun of him because I, I see myself in this. I actually felt good when he said that. I thought, okay, I'm not the only one who had just never thought these things through. So if you haven't given a great deal to this, and if so far it has not been a part of what you are teaching and training your youth in, well, you've got time to do this. Time to talk about how this resurrection life is going to be different from our away from the body at home with the Lord intermediate existence before the return of Christ and the resurrection. This is the glorious future that all of human history has been headed toward. And if this is the substance of the hope that we have in Christ, if this is what all creation is groaning in anticipation of, isn't it worth seeking to anticipate ourselves? Isn't it worth teaching and training those entrusted to us about? So here's, if somebody asks you, do you, are you going to heaven when you die? You might, you know, you might walk out of here and somebody's doing a survey or something and they ask you that, right? <laughs> you did that too, right? Some of you? Okay. Um, here's how you can say, if somebody asks you this question, you can say, yes, I am, but that will not be my final destination. The day's going to come when heaven is going to come to earth and we will return to this earth with Christ. And it's going to be a beautiful city, a fruitful garden. It's going to be perfectly secure. Nothing evil will ever be able to enter it. It's going to be a home that is even better than Eden was. Our spirits will be reunited with our bodies, except our bodies will not be like they were before. They won't be vulnerable to sickness. They won't be limited in longevity. They will be resurrected, glorified, like Christ's resurrected body, made for living with him and all who love him forever in the new heaven and the new earth. How do you think that, that uh, person taking the survey will respond to that? This is what God has said, set before us to long for. Maybe even sing about. Would you sing with me? Shall we sing about this? Sing with me. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget That though the wrong seems oft so strong God is the ruler yet this is my father's world the battle is not done jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one let's pray together lord i thank you for your word lord we we just don't take it for granted that your word gives us all we need for life and godliness. 
And some of us would have to admit that sometimes we wish it told us more about our eternal future than it really does reveal. And yet we know you have given us everything we need. Everything we need to have to grieve with hope. Everything we need to live uh, in faith, setting our sights on the future you have planned for us. Everything we need to die well to the glory of God. So, Lord, thank you for your word. Help us to take hold of it, to chew on it. And would you allow this word, would you allow what you have told us, what you have set before us to put our hopes in, would you allow it to dominate what we say about heaven, how we think about heaven, how we feel about heaven, and how we train those entrusted us, entrusted to us, to put their hopes in heaven. In your name I pray, amen. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Rooted Podcast, where we hope to communicate the truths of the gospel and apply those truths to youth ministry. We would love for you to check out our website where we publish articles daily geared towards both youth ministers and parents. You will also find resources and more information about our conferences, regional events, and more at www.rootedministry.com.